All right, turn to Mark chapter 9. You can look on the back of your bulletin, or you can follow along on the, uh, on the PowerPoint slide here. Mark chapter 9. I'm going to read the entire passage here, beginning in verse 14. I preached on most of this last week, but the series starts uh, in verse 28. So let's start in verse 14 together. Mark 9, 14. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed, and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. Verse 21. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood, and it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? Verse 29, And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This is an amazing story. And it's about a group of disciples who are just like us. And they lost power. They were stuck. They were humiliated. They were embarrassed. They had been defeated. They had to turn away a desperate father and his son who was filled with a demon because they lacked power. And we're not so very much unlike them, are we? Power outage. Pa power fail. You guys may not know this, but we are two days away from passing the 15-year anniversary of something that happened on August 14, 2003. Does anybody remember what happened on that day, by any chance? Okay, good. It's the largest power outage in U.S. history. Largest one ever in the United States of America. 55 million people were plunged into darkness in the northeast U.S. and in parts of Canada. Within three minutes, 265 power plants shut down, and it brought eight U.S. states to their knees. And some major cities, namely New York City, were just, they couldn't function. They couldn't function. Here's a map um, of the area that was hit the hardest. Now, 55 million people in 2003, that's a sixth of the population of the United States. So just let me, let me put that in perspective for you. That's a lot of people. The power failure stopped trains. It stalled elevators. It disrupted everything from cell phone service to hospital operations to airport traffic. In New York City, passengers were evacuated from stalled subway trains. 
Stores lost refrigerated food, restaurants closed, water services shut down, traffic jams were everywhere because of the failed uh, stoplights, traffic lights, stranded passengers at amusement park rides screamed out in panic to be rescued. Life for over 55 million Americans came to a screeching halt. They were stuck, they were stranded, they were trapped. And listen, this is just on the heels of 9-11. So what do you think people were thinking in New York? Terrorism. Here we go again. So they were panicking. They were panicking, thinking that it was just another act of terrorism by Taliban. American and Canadian leaders began pointing fingers at each other, accusing each country who was at fault, and they both launched simultaneous investigations to uh, determine who was to blame. And as it turns out, all of this power outage happened because of one overgrown tree that made contact with a power line in Ohio. And it shut down their entire local power plant there, and it triggered a series of power fails all over the place. The company that was to blame was called First Energy. And whenever this investigation launched, they came to uh, of many other conclusions too. And here they were. Number one, First Energy did not recognize or understand the deteriorating condition of its power system. Number two, First Energy failed to manage threatening tree growth near its power lines. Are you guys hearing some spiritual parallels here? Um, Neglect, neglect, neglect. When we lose power, it costs us. In New York City, do you know what that power outage cost them when it was all said and done? Over $500 million. Transportation, communication, industry, everything shut down. They had to hire 40,000 policemen and every fireman in New York City was dispatched for that. Because of neglect, power was interrupted to eight U.S. cities and chaos ensued. Now, when you look back at this story in the Gospel of Mark, there's another power failure here. And I believe it's bigger than the one we just read about historically in the United States. Because more is at stake here. These men had lost power. And they had no clue why. They really didn't have any idea why they were so powerless and and they were so easily defeated by a demon. They, They didn't get it. They were embarrassed. They were humiliated. And they wanted answers. So as soon as all these crowds dispersed and disappeared and they had Jesus alone in a house, they hit him up with a question that we would have if we would have been there. They said, what happened? They said, why couldn't we cast that demon out, Jesus? Now, it's interesting to me, what they didn't say is, how'd you do that? (laughs) They didn't ask Jesus, how did you do that? They knew. God was with Jesus, right? But they couldn't connect the dots. God is with Jesus, and every time he attempts something in the name of God, it happens. He's successful. He triumphs. There's victory. They couldn't put the the pieces together of their own puzzle and see that God was not with them. That's exactly what Jesus tells them in not so many words. I know he says uh, this kind comes out only by prayer. Uh, But what Jesus is saying by this kind, I don't think he means this was a super demon and it was really stubborn because all demons are stubborn and all demons are powerful. What Jesus is saying is this kind of ministry, this kind of ministry that you're attempting uh, on your own, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. And listen, you don't have to raise your hands, but how many people have tried that kind of ministry? I have. Many years. Got lots of t-shirts that I never wear that tell the tale of it. Lots of failures in my own ministry and in my own family and personal life were due to me neglecting one of the greatest weapons, resources, privileges, and freedoms that God gave us. Prayer. Prayer. 
Prayer and faith so often are linked together in the Bible. One lays hold of the other. One develops and grows the other. That's the way that it is. So they said, why are we so weak? Why is there no growth? Why is there no victory? Do you wonder that sometimes? Why is there no joy in my life? Why do I live a life that seems to be just defeated all the time? All the time. I see no victory, sense no desire for growth or change in my own heart. I think that's where the disciples were. This story really summarizes that. Why don't we have any power? And Jesus says, God was not with you. You left him behind. It reminds me of Samson, really. You remember the story of Samson in the Old Testament? Judges chapter 16, Samson finally gives up his secret to Delilah. She cuts his hair. He falls asleep, which is a spiritual picture, I think. Samson needed to be awakened, right? She woke him up and said, Samson, quick, on your feet. The Philistines, they're outside. And it says, this is one of the most tragic stories in the Old Testament. It says, Samson arose and he ran outside and he said to himself, I will go out as I have before, and will overthrow the Philistines. And then there's this little footnote. It says, but Samson did not know that God had left him. And with God, his power went. And Samson, as you know, was overtaken. He was blinded. He was humiliated. And all of us have been a Samson in our life. We've all been just like these disciples. Matthew records this same story, and his answer is different than Mark, but Jesus said a lot of things, and they all had their own angle on it. Matthew records Jesus as answering them, why why couldn't we cast it out? And Jesus said, because of your little faith. Because you had such little tiny faith. And that's interesting to me because Mark says you didn't pray. Matthew says you didn't have faith. What does that teach us in the Bible? Faith and prayer are always connected. Always, always connected. Are we surprised? So the disciples cut off their own power supply. I mean, they unplugged their own cord, man. That's what they did. That's what they did. I can imagine the story I've told you before, the arguing. You know, the father brings his son to the disciples who represent the church, right? He came like so many other people come to the church for help. And the church failed him. The disciples couldn't do it. Maybe they tried. Maybe they did their little abracadabra, hocus pocus, whatever formula had worked before. uh, And nothing worked. Maybe the child got worse and foamed and became rigid. This is a terrible story. It says, this boy was mute, he couldn't talk. He was deaf, he couldn't hear. And this demon was trying to crush him. The words in Greek, the verbs, are violent. He probably had multiple concussions. He's probably on the brink of death. He couldn't communicate his despair. He couldn't hear encouragement. And then the disciples tried to cast it out and they couldn't. And maybe, maybe they told the dad, well, you don't have enough faith. When the truth was, they didn't have faith, right? Maybe they tried... The second time and the third time, and then they looked at the dad and they said, I'm really sorry. Uh, apparently, this demon's too strong for Jesus. This is pretty difficult, and there's nothing we can do. There's nothing that the Lord can do to help you. No wonder when Jesus came down the mountain, they rejoiced to see him and ran to him, just like we would. Let's get some sanity here. Faith, listen, faith can only be as strong as its object. And the object of our faith is Jesus, right? Charles Spurgeon said something. My wife reminded me of this this morning. Um, if you had the morning and evening Spurgeon devotion, it's excellent. Really great devotion. He said this. This is so good, guys. A neglected prayer life is the beginning of all spiritual decline. You can mark that. You can underline that. You can tattoo that on your wrist and on your forehead. And you can take that to the bank. That's true. I have never in my life seen a church or a Christian in a church with a neglected prayer life thrive or flourish spiritually ever. I've never seen it. 
I've witnessed it in my own heart. In fact, this has been one of the most convicting seasons of my life. God keeps bringing up prayer to me. The books that I'm reading, the passages I have to preach on because they're next, you know. We've committed ourselves to Mark's gospel. That's the beauty of expositorily preaching consecutively through a book. You have to deal with what's there. And I have to wrestle with this in my own heart. My greatest fear for Grace Life Church is not that we grow cold, we grow stale, uh, we diminish in numbers, people quit tithing, people quit giving. Those things are scary for a pastor. They are. And I wake up with a cold sweat in the middle of the night, but I can tell you this, my greatest fear and my greatest concern and my greatest prayer for this church is this, that we would stop praying, that we would stop praying. Charles Spurgeon told his congregation, when you stop praying for me as your pastor and when you stop praying for the city that I preach in, tell me and I will resign that day. And that's how I feel. It really is. And this is not an accusation. You guys pray. You tell me you pray. I feel your prayers. Um, but this is a lesson better caught uh, and taught before you're in a crisis, right? So this is the sermon outline for this morning, okay? Two things. I know I normally have three, but I'm sorry. This passage just has two. We're just going to look at two. This is a really, this whole passage I preached on last week, you can go download the message if you want to know more about what that represented with the disciples. Um, but I just really want to focus on verses 28 and 29. Their question and Jesus' answer. And this prayer is a vast subject. It's on every page literally in the Bible. And so we could go a lot of different places. I just want to go these two places right here. One, without prayer. This is what you lose. It's a power that you lose, right? But it's a power that you lose in this way. Number one, you'll never, never, ever truly know yourself if you don't pray. You won't know yourself. And secondly, you will never truly know God. Now the first one, you'll never know your weakness, which is a strength. That sounds counterintuitive, doesn't it? Sounds upside down. Until you know you are weak, you will never experience power. You won't. Because you will be living a delusion. You'll be living a lie. And secondly, you'll never truly know God, which is to say you'll never truly know His power. So this is about knowing yourself and your weakness and knowing God and His power. That's what this entire sermon hinges on. So number one, you'll never truly know yourself. Oh, man, we could just preach the entire sermon on this point, and I pray that this is clear and articulate and that you understand this. Prayer is kind of like sleep in the first place. It's a reminder. Uh, have you ever wondered, why do we have to sleep? You know, scientists can't really tell you why you have to sleep, but they can tell you if you don't, you will die. They even have a Guinness Book of World Record for the longest period of time somebody went without sleep, and people have died trying to break that. So why is it that God created us to, to curl up in a fetal position for eight hours every night and suck our thumbs? Why? <laughs> Do you think maybe it could be a reminder, a built-in, hardwired reminder that uh, we're not God, maybe? <laughs> that we're not in control? That, w that we don't direct history? <laughs> and that we have to sleep? But that God doesn't? He neither slumbers nor sleeps. It's a built-in reminder. Well, prayer is the same thing. Why do we pray? To remind ourselves we are dependent. We need God. We need His help. We are weak. We are insufficient. We are fragile. We are helpless. And you know what? You say that loud enough and long enough and in different ways, it steps on people's toes, even Christians in the church, because we don't like that language. We want to project strength and sufficiency and this never let them see a sweat kind of idea. Even with God, even when we're alone. It's as if prayer is such a painful and agonizing reminder that we're not God and we don't have it all together. 
That's why it's interesting to me. Do you know the only acceptable faith in this entire story? There's scribes there. There's Pharisees there. Religious people are there. The disciples are there who watched Jesus perform all the miracles. Do you know the only acceptable gesture of faith in that entire scenario is the Father? He's the only one who prays. And do you know what his prayer is? I believe, help my unbelief. He is riddled with doubt. Doubt and uncertainty is assaulting his heart and mind. And what does he do with it? Does he hide it? Does he suppress it? Does he cork it and, 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 and act like everything's fine? No. What does he do? He confesses it to God. He says, Lord, I believe, but I'm so unsure. I'm just riddled with doubt. I, I don't know. The disciples failed me. The church failed me. The religious people mocked me. This demon is tormenting my son. And Jesus says, that's all I wanted to hear, son. That's all I wanted to hear. I can work with that. Because nobody has perfect faith. Only one, Jesus. This father of this son who was demon-possessed had imperfect faith. And he declared and acknowledged in the presence of Jesus, I desperately need you. This father knew himself better than anybody else in this story did. How about that? You're never ever going to truly know yourself until you get alone in the presence of God on your knees in prayer. You just can't. And there's no, ways, there's no way to personally change and be transformed apart from prayer. And listen, I'm not, I'm not trying to, uh, I'm not bringing accusations because I don't know you, but I will tell you this. If you struggle with seeing true heart transformation and change take place in your heart, and yet you have neglected to cultivate this habit of prayer, which is a privilege, it's a benefit, it's not legalism to talk about this, it's a glory to talk about it. If you neglected prayer, you will never, ever experience the true transformation that God intends um, to work in your heart. You won't. You won't, because that is inextricably linked to prayer, which is actually cultivating faith. You have to face yourself, and most people can't stand to do that. When you are alone in the presence of God, you have to face who you are. And most people, I will tell you this, friends, because the gospel has never truly taken root in their heart, they won't do that. They can't do it. Even in their car with the windows up and their iPhone turned off because they're scared, right? Or with the, the, the duct tape over that <laughs> video monitor on their, on their computer. They won't face God. They won't face themselves, and so they miss out. Lots of people miss out all the time. One person said this. Listen to this quote. Prayer is the only entryway into genuine self-knowledge. That's a great way to start the quote. I mean, just wrap your mind around that. We talk about self-awareness. How do you get self-awareness? Prayer. You want to be aware of your insufficiencies, your weaknesses, your flaws, the chinks in your armor? You go to God in prayer and you ask Him to show you. Most of the psalmist prayers... Search me, O God, and know my heart. You know, God already knew his heart. That was a prayer for him to show the psalmist what's in there. Prayer is the only entryway in the genuine self-knowledge. It is also the main way we experience deep change. The reordering of our loves. Prayer is how God gives us so many of the unimaginable things he has for us. Indeed, prayer makes it safe for God to give us the many things we most desire. It is the way we know God, the way we finally treat God as God. And then he says this, if we give priority to the outer life, the outer life, then our inner life will be dark and scary. We will not know what to do with solitude. We will be deeply uncomfortable with self-examination and we will have an increasingly short attention span for any kind of reflection. Even more seriously, our lives will lack integrity. Outwardly, we will need to project confidence, spiritual and emotional health and wholeness while inwardly we may be filled with self-doubts, anxieties, self-pity, and old grudges. 
yet we won't know how to go into the inner rooms of the heart, see clearly what is there, and deal with it. In short, unless we put a priority on the inner life of prayer, we turn ourselves into hypocrites. And I've seen this. We're so radically insecure. We're so quick to be defensive, right? Why is that? Because we neglect this privilege. Look at the disciples. Why couldn't we cast it out? A better question would be, why in the world would you presume to be able to do anything apart from the presence and power of Christ? John 15, 5. Apart from me, you can do nothing. By the way, that's a great statement about the deity of Jesus Christ. In other words, that Jesus is God. Because if he's not, what an arrogant thing to say. Can you imagine me as your pastor? Hey, grace life, apart from me, you can do nothing. (laughs) Unless I'm God? Man, that's jacked up, isn't it? This is a statement of who Jesus is and what he offers. Apart from me, you can do nothing. These disciples had unplugged the power cord from Jesus. So guess what? They were weak. They were ineffective. They were publicly humiliated by a demon. Even though God had given them authority over demons in Mark chapter 6, they had even gone out and successfully cast out demons before. That's why this was probably so shocking to them. Check this quote out. This is about, remember, knowing yourself. The disciples are trying to exercise a demon, but they have been trying to exercise it without praying. How arrogant, how clueless they are about their inadequacy to deal with the evil and suffering of the world. The disciples tried prayerless exorcism for the same reason that they couldn't understand why Jesus had to die. They didn't see how weak and proud they were. They underestimated the power of evil in the world and in themselves. Man, prayer is... Prayerlessness is your own declaration of independence from God. Saying, hey God, thank you. I've got this from here. I'll take it from here, right? One of my favorite stories in the Old Testament, and I'm going to preach a sermon on this one of these days. It's so gripped me, even this week. Even this week, you know you're studying a passage you have to preach on, but you're gripped by another passage. That's a dilemma for a pastor. Um, in, In Genesis chapter 32, how many people in here know about Jacob? You know the story of Jacob. Jacob was a con man. He was a con man. In Hebrew, his name, Jacob, it actually means a cheat. Did you know that? Names are really important in the Old Testament, by the way. It it revealed a lot about your character and your integrity or your lack thereof. Jacob was a cheat. He was a trickster. He was a deceiver. In fact, Jeremiah 17, 9, when it says the heart uh, is deceitful and desperately wicked above all things who can know it, it actually says in Hebrew, the heart is a Jacob. So that tells you what Jacob's name means. You remember Jacob, he was born with his twin brother Esau. And Esau was older and he was coming out of the womb first. And Jacob actually reached up, (laughs) he actually reached up and grabbed his brother's heel and yanked on it, trying to supplant and come out first. Isn't that interesting, man? Even at birth, he was a trickster. That's why he was named Jacob. It means heel catcher, cheat. And his entire life, his character and his name proved to be the same. Because he cheated people, he deceived people. He stole from people. He stole his brother Esau's birthright. He stole his brother Esau's blessing. He actually deceived his aging father who was on his deathbed. And you know, back then, if you were a Jew, you would bless the eldest son to pass on your heritage. And then you would give something, some of the scraps to the younger son, you know, the baby. Sorry if you're a baby like me in the family. So Jacob couldn't handle it. So you know what he did? He dressed up like his brother Esau. He even put goat hair on his arms because Esau was hairy. And he wore his brother's clothing so he could trick his dad smelling his brother. And he went in and he pretended to be Esau. And the father blessed Jacob instead of Esau. He stole his brother's birthright. And listen, 
When the brother found out, he wasn't happy. He pledged, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you. And so the mom said, Jacob, you better get out of here. And he ran away for decades. He ran away and he hid. He started a life of his own. That's another whole story. He went and lived with his uncle Laban and, and cheated, you know, his, his uncle Laban too. And got his two daughters, married Laban's two daughters. And Jacob was running for his life. And, and in the story, you're reading this and you're thinking, why is this story here? Jacob is a, this, this guy's no good. He's worthless. He's a rascal. And then there's this event that defines the rest of Jacob's life and ministry. And it's this event where Jacob hears that his brother is coming to see him after all these years. And his servants say, hey, your brother's coming and he's got 400 men with him. Uh-oh. <laughs> now, what would you be thinking if you were Jacob? Judgment. God's finally going to get me. Judgment's coming. He was. He was scared to death. And the Bible actually says, uh, there's a story where Jacob was left... This is, how, this is how much of a cheat and a con man he was. He knew his brother was coming. He started sending gifts his way to try and appease his brother. You remember? He sent camels and sheep and cows. And then he sent his family. He sent his kids. He sent his, his wives first. And he stayed behind. And listen, for the first time in his life, Jacob had to face who he was. This is an amazing story. Uh, and, and even the subtitle in my Bible says, Jacob wrestles with the Lord. Have you guys ever read this story? Genesis, Genesis 32. Jacob wrestles with God. Um, so he was alone. It was at night. And he was afraid. And all of a sudden, out of the bushes, <laughs> jumps this man and grabs Jacob and wrestles him to the ground. Now, who do you think Jacob thought this was? Probably Esau. This is worst nightmare come true. It's Esau. No, worst nightmare than that. It was God. It was God. This is actually in the Bible. The Bible's not boring, folks. It's pretty interesting. So the Bible says that this man, maybe a pre-incarnate, you know, version of Jesus. We don't know. We're not really sure. Hosea chapter 12 says it was an angel of the Lord. We don't know. But there's a physical, there's physical wrestling. And it says they wrestled until the break of day. Now, when I was a kid, I wrestled. And it's pretty exhausting, man. It is. You know, give me 20, 30 minutes, I'm done. Can you imagine wrestling with somebody all night long until the break of day? Jacob did this. And it's fascinating to read this story. Let me, let me read this to you. Check this out. Listen to this. And Jacob was left alone. And if you know that story, that's never happened before. Jacob, alone, finally facing himself. The cheat, the trickster, the usurper, the liar. He's finally alone, and he's got to face himself and this whole story to me is reminiscent of prayer. You know, we hear that, agonize with God in prayer, prevailing prayer, wrestle with God. Well, this is literally what happened. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. And the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob. He touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Man, that's faith, isn't it? He said, I'm not letting go of you. I want the blessing. I said, Jacob, you already got the blessing. You stole it from your brother. I think Jacob knew God was not happy with him. He knew, and finally he's got God and he's not letting go. And he said to him, what is your name? Man, this is so good, guys. This story is amazing. God is asking Jacob, what's your name? Now, did God already know that? Yeah. I don't think Jacob knows, though. I don't think Jacob has fully come to grips with who he is. He's a cheat. He's a liar. He's a fraud. 
And God wants him, confess it. I'm not letting go of you and I'm not going to bless you until you come to terms with who you are and you let me change you. See, all this happens in prayer. You think you know who you really are? You get on your face, you get in the presence of God alone with nobody else around and you reveal the depths of your heart. You will find out who you are and then you'll find out who God is. But listen to this. What's your name? And he said, Jacob. Can you imagine? He's basically saying, God, I'm a cheat. I've been a cheat my entire life. I've been running from you. I've been running from me. And then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. Jacob said, hey, listen, you tell me your name. He goes, no, we ain't going there. But he said, why is it that you asked my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. See, he knew who he was wrestling with. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Now, I've tried to imagine what this looked like. Can you imagine Jacob? He's been alone by himself all night. He sent his entire family and tribe across the river uh, Jabbok to go and meet his brother. And the, the sun comes up, and they're like, Where's Jacob? And they hear, they hear somebody panting, and they hear feet shuffling. And they look, and they, and they say, there he is. And here's Jacob. His hair's disheveled. There's mud all over him. He's got red marks from wrestling, and his hip's out of joint. And he said, hey, God bless me back there. <laughs> Can you imagine? That's what happened here, though. Jacob finally confronted his true self, who he was. He finally owned up to who he was. And listen, that is, honestly, that's the way it is with us. That never happens until we finally face ourselves. There's a, there's a quote by uh, John Owen. He says this. This struck me as a pastor. John Owen said, A minister may fill his pews, his communion roll, the mouths of the public, but what that minister is on his knees, in secret, before God Almighty, that he is, and no more. See, Jacob's name was changed to Israel. You know what Israel means? It means God strives. And it doesn't mean that God strives with you, it means that God strives for you. Finally, Jacob stopped fighting God and he faced God and joined God on his mission. That's what prayer accomplishes. One man said, when Jacob fought successfully with God, he won the battle with man. To be successful with God meant that he had to be crippled in his own self-sufficiency. You know what I think our problem is a lot of the time? I'm serious. I'm dead serious. I think we haven't been crippled where we need to be crippled. And you're never going to be until you go to God in prayer and get alone with Him and face yourself and own up to yourself. I'm weak. And God, I don't want to go. Like Moses, if you don't go with me, I'm not going. Show me your glory. Bless me. Lay hold of me. Show me your power. See, that doesn't happen apart from prayer. And I think that's one of the reasons we find prayer so challenging and so difficult. It really is. See, we have, we have to project, like the quote said, we got to project strength. You can't do that. You can deceive people, but when you're alone in the presence of God, your cover's blown, right? You can't deceive God. And we know that. That's why we're so reluctant to go into his presence, I think. So I think one of the reasons that this father of the demon-possessed son said what he said was because he got it. He understood this unchristian notion that so many of us have is, I'm going to present this perfect record to God, and then he's going to give me power. Listen, that's not Christianity. That's every other religion in the world that, that they're all false religions. Is you, do, you, you give your resume, get it ready, prepare it, offer it to God, and then you cash in. 
That's not, we don't, we don't achieve God's help. We receive God's help. Jesus offers the perfect record to God on our behalf, and then power is ours when we acknowledge that through faith. It's, it's human effort versus d- divine accomplishment. So believing that God is only going to bless you when you get it all together, that's, that's not Christianity. Faith is an empty vessel. It's an open hand. That's what prayer accomplishes. So, and in fact, this, there's an ongoing theme here with the disciples. Jesus is going to consistently and continually call these disciples to do things that is beyond their capacity. Why do you think he does that? Why do you think he does that with you? Why do you think he does that with me? Look, p- planting a church scared me to death. I'd never planted a church in my life. I'd never been a lead pastor in my life. And God called me to do that. And it scared me. And I said, I'm not doing this without you. Don't let me do this on my own. God continually does that. He does that with his disciples and with us to call us to pray. To call us to pray. So had the disciples taken that opportunity, I think, to gather around that father and his demon-possessed son and to kick the scribes out of the picture and humble themselves and acknowledge their weakness and deficiency, I believe they would have no problems casting that demon out. So they were weak, but he is strong. That's important. That's critical. And that's our second and last point. Um, Point number one was you'll never truly know yourself. And I want to challenge you. Do you know yourself? Do you know where the chinks are in your armor? Do you know that? Other people do. (laughs) We don't even want to ask other people about it. But look, that's for a later sermon. If you want to know where you're weak and inefficient and, and, and helpless and really need God's grace to be pushed, need the gospel to be massaged deeper into your life, go to the Lord in prayer and lay all these things out before him. Second point, you'll never truly know God and his full power unless you pray. We all know that prayer is, we know prayer is the nerve that moves God's muscle. We know that. Um, And so we never truly know his prayer until we know his power until we pray. And prayer is war. Prayer is work. And it's also worship. It doesn't come easy. And you know what? When you talk about prayer, so many people are scared because prayer is what I would call a means of grace. It's a spiritual discipline. And some people, are t- they're like, ah, you're telling me to do something. I thought we were against this do more, try harder, do better thing, Pastor. But listen, guys, challenging you to pray is not legalism, okay? It's not. It's a privilege. It's good for you. It honors Christ. It will give God's power to you when you pray. I, I like to use this illustration with people when I-, when I do counseling. Do you remember the story of Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and he was a big sinner. He was a megas tax collector in Greek. Big chief tax collector. Betrayed his people, scum of the earth, okay? And on top of all of that, he was short. So he heard Jesus was coming to town, and probably he was convicted, so he wanted to see Jesus. But he was short, and people hated his guts because he stole their money. So guess what? There's a parade, and all these people are lined up to see Jesus, and you ain't getting in. <laughs> They're hip-checking him, right? So he has an idea. There's a sycamore tree that hangs over the road where Jesus is going to be walking. And so can you imagine Zacchaeus? I don't know sycamore. I should have looked this up before I preach. Sycamore trees, maybe they have branches way up high. Can you imagine this wee little tax collector dressed in noble clothing trying to shinny up this tree and people pointing and laughing? But he didn't care. He wanted to see Jesus. Why the sycamore tree? Don't lose this truth from that story. That sycamore tree was a tool. That's all it was. See, Zacchaeus needed to see Jesus, but his entrance was blocked. 
So what did he do? He, he was a bright young man, I guess. And he said, I can't get through them, but I can go over them. I'm going to place myself in the most strategic position where I can behold Jesus and see him clearly. Because he knew if I can just see Jesus, if I can just fix my eyes on Christ, I'll get power. Something will change. He can help me. And so he climbed up the sycamore tree. He climbed out over the road and he encountered Jesus. And listen, prayer is a sycamore tree. That's why I'm telling you, okay? Prayer is not an end in and of itself. Prayer is not something you do to go check a box. It's just a tool in a tool belt of spiritual disciplines. That all, that's all it is. If you want to behold Christ, if you want to get power, if you want to grow and change, then use prayer and use reading the Word. Those are spiritual disciplines. Don't think they're legalism. They're legalism if you think God's going to love you more if you do it. That's legalism. God loves you because of what Jesus did. You cannot do anything to make Him love you more. You can't do anything to make Him love you less. That's fixed. The spiritual discipline is the way that we grow and challenge ourselves. So I just wanted, I wanted to mention that. James Boyce says, that, says this. He says, Our secret resource is prayer. And what makes it so important is that the weakest Christian can at any period of his life, at any moment of the day, and in any circumstance, cry out to God for help and instantly have the resources of the infinite sovereign God at his disposal. Man, we forget that, don't we? Instantly have access to the sovereign infinite God and all his resources are at your disposal if you would just ask. If you would just humble yourself and go to him with boldness, Hebrews says, with expectancy, with confidence, and ask. Prayer is, you see God's power in prayer. You really do. You really do. Um, did the disciples ever learn this? Well, let me remind you of something that happened um, not too long from there. This is one of the last weeks of Jesus' life. And it's interesting, if you look at the disciples here, and then you fast forward the tape, 30 days, 50 days from now, uh, what happens? Do you know one of the greatest manifestations of the power of God ever recorded in history? You know what it was? The resurrection, yes. Uh, but 50 days after that, the day of Pentecost. Did you know that? You know what brought about Pentecost? The Holy Spirit coming down. 3,000 people were saved. Did you know that? That's power. How did that happen? Well... I think this had something to do with it. Then they returned. This is after Jesus was resurrected and ascended to heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Now, from Passover to Pentecost is 50 days. The Bible says after Jesus was raised from the dead for 40 days, he appeared to his disciples. So for a 10-day period, as best we can put together the chronology here, 120 followers went to Jerusalem. They obeyed their master's will. They went into an upper room. They gathered together. And for 10 days, they united and devoted themselves to prayer. And then what happened on that 10th day? Holy Spirit came down. Peter preached an anointed message. 3,000 people were converted. The church was birthed. Um, it expanded, and then it extended into the uttermost places of the earth, and we're the result of that. How? Prayer for 10 days. Isn't that amazing? You want to see the power of God? See, what we do now, they, they prayed for 10 days. Peter preached for 10 minutes. Pentecost, right? We'll preach for 10 days, <laughs> And we'll pray for 10 minutes, and if two people <laughs> confess a sin, we think Pentecost all over again. 
We've really inverted and reversed this thing, guys. It's prayer. When we get together as a leadership and pray, oh my word, man, I love it. I'm like, Peter, I want to build a tabernacle. Let's stay here forever. But you can't, you know, you got kids that are hungry and diapers to change and all that. So yeah, I think they, I think they learned uh, part of the lesson because Pentecost was the power of God. And Jesus was always teaching them this. He said, men ought always to pray and not lose heart. Man, we lose heart so easily. The first sermon that Jesus ever preached was teaching his disciples how to pray. That is so critical. And it's so easy to forget that. And listen, I know I'm preaching this sermon. I know full well. I know full well because I've heard hundreds of sermons just like this one. I know it's going to take more than a good sermon. Hopefully this is good and clear. It's going to take more than a sermon or a conference to make you pray. You know what it's usually going to take? A crisis. That's when it's going to take an emergency. Then you're going to go to the Lord and you're going to humble yourself. But listen, you don't have to wait until that happens. That's what I'm telling you. You don't have to wait. It's better to, to be taught it than to have to, to learn it on the go. But Jesus gets glory from this. You know what prayer says about his power? It says, number one, he's rich. He has an abundance of gifts and power stored up for his believers. And secondly, he says he's generous. He's willing to part with it. There's a story about uh, Alexander the Great. Before the time of Christ, he had conquered most of the known world and Hellenized everybody and, and spread Greek culture everywhere. And he was an, an amazing um, general. And he had generals who served under him. And one of them he was very fond of. This is his favorite general, his right-hand guy. And his daughter was going to get married. And so Alexander, as a kind gesture to his friend, his general, he said, look, I want to pay for this wedding. And back then, weddings were a lot bigger deal than they are now. He said, I want to pay for this wedding. So the general said, thank you. And they had the most lavish, elaborate wedding you've probably ever seen in your life. Um, and Alexander's uh, steward took the bill and his eyes got big. And he walked up to Alexander and he very timidly handed him this bill for the wedding. And Alexander looked at it and he smiled and he said, pay it. He said, don't you see, by asking me for such an enormous sum, he does me great honor. He believes I am both rich and generous. And guys, we honor God when we come to him with boldness and praying because we show he is both rich and abundance and power and he's generous. He's generous. There's a, there's a quote that says, uh, it's kind of poetic, Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring, for his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. And so the greatest tragedy in a Christian life is not unanswered prayer, it's unoffered prayer. So think of all the things that God is calling us to do as we live on mission for Him. And how has that reflected the urgency and the dependency in your prayer life? I just want to ask you that. I want to challenge you this morning to just be persistent. Jesus taught a lot of parables about that. The widow with the unjust judge and the person who needed a midnight snack and went to knock on his neighbor's door. Importunity, persistence, pray through it, don't give up. Um... And I'll close with this story. George Mueller, many of you know, is, had the spiritual gift of intercessory prayer, definitely. The man accomplished so much by prayer alone and never told anybody but God his needs and then wrote about him in his journals, the only way we know. Um, but in November of 1844, he said this in his diary. In November of 1844, I began to pray for the conversion of five individuals. I prayed every day without a single intermission, whether sick or in health on the land, on the sea, and whatever the pressure of my engagements might be. 
After 18 months, one of his friends came to know the Lord, was saved. Ten years later, two others had been saved. Now keep in mind, he's praying every day for them. Every day. It took 25 years before the fourth man was converted. And Mueller, Mueller, excuse me, persevered in prayer for his fifth friend. Throughout those 52 years, he never gave up, hoping that he would accept Christ. For 52 years, George Mueller prayed for these five friends. And within days of his funeral, when he died, the fifth friend came to know Christ. That's a pretty amazing story, isn't it? Of just perseverance and prayer. Um, and I just want to encourage you. We are weak, and we are inadequate, and we are insufficient in and of ourselves, but we have a powerful and sufficient God. And there is only one reason that we can go to God and be welcomed in His presence and be heard and have His ear. And it's this, because there was one man who belonged in God's presence. He deserved to be there. He had perfect faith. He didn't have any doubt. He wasn't riddled with uncertainty. He knew God. He knew Himself. And He walked into God's presence and He prayed and His prayer was unanswered. you know who that was? It was Jesus. Jesus prayed on the cross in darkness alone. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, Jesus was cast out of the presence of God so that you and I could be brought in. Jesus was crucified. Uh, he bore God's judgment. He didn't bring God's judgment. He bore it. He was forsaken so that you and I could be forgiven. And listen, there are two kinds of prayers in the Bible. And I'll summarize them this way. One is help. And the other is thank you. And man, salvation boils those two prayers down, right? God help. Maybe you're here today. Maybe you don't really know where you stand with God. Maybe you've never fully understood. How does a person go from unbelief to belief? How do, how do we get forgiven? It's very easy. It's very simple. Easy for us, not for God. It's very simple. You confess that you are a sinner and you are in desperate need of grace and forgiveness. And the only way that you and I could be forgiven, friends, is that somebody had to be forsaken. Somebody had to pay the penalty for our sins. We have all turned us aside and strayed from God and broken His commandments and not given Him glory. And Jesus never did any of those things, but He was punished on our behalf. So if you believe the gospel, if you believe the good news that Jesus came, lived the perfect life that God demanded of you and offers that to you in faith, and then He died the death that you and I deserve and was raised from the dead to prove God accepted it, if you believe that in your heart, the Bible says you will be saved. So make that your prayer today. Make that your prayer today. God, help me. Save me. Forgive me. Cleanse me. And God will hear you. He will hear your prayer and He will cleanse your heart. And if you are a Christian, this is just a good reminder for all of us to just be challenged. Uh, in this series, this is the right way to start this series. Everyday power starts with prayer on your knees. And figure out whatever schedule works with you. Corey Ten Boom said this, make an appointment with God and keep it. Right? Don't make prayer the spare tire. Make it the steering wheel in your Christian walk.